you see all of these systems and you have to decide in order to serve a person today, what am I willing to do to help someone today? And what am I also willing to do to dismantle the system that creates this every day? Think about the way the world is and the way that the world could be. All of our systems are interrelated and interdependent. There's a thousand different voices that nobody hears. We're looking at a human being, and there's life story. 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 Connection to the people we don't know that live near us. An Elevated Denver starts now. Welcome back to the Elevated Denver podcast, where we're bringing key topics and stories about homelessness to light. We're excited for today's episode on systems barriers that prevent us from applying proven and innovative solutions to the issue of homelessness. We will continue to hear from those most affected by the systemic breakdown, as well as local experts, and we'll learn about bright spots in the system. We will bring you data, context, and will highlight solutions. I'm here with Leanne, Jana, and Myra. Throughout the episode, you'll hear Jana and Myra asking our guests questions and Leanne tying some threads together through the narration. I think you'll enjoy it. Stay with us. This is episode 15, the last episode of season two. Throughout the season, we've brought you stories from some of our unhoused neighbors, those most visible and those who remain largely invisible to the public. We dove into topics like evictions, dying with dignity, trauma, and encampments. And we've brought you special episodes so you could hear directly from the new mayor and learn about innovative programs like the Denver Basic Income Project and Gooder Grocer. For this last episode, we want to pull back and focus on how all these stories and topics come together in what we call the system. A system is defined as a group of things that connect and form some kind of coherent whole. When we talk about the homelessness system, we're referring to the services and resources intended to support someone experiencing homelessness, including housing, food, case management, job training, and more. But to understand the roots of this issue and how we can effectively tackle the homelessness crisis, we need to also understand the related systems, including health care, criminal justice, education, and foster care. In this episode, we'll touch on how some of these systems are impacting homelessness and what happens when we don't coordinate among providers. We'll also talk about prevention, collaboration, and solutions. Dr. Jamie Reif, Executive Director of the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative, remarked on the impact of the systems on homelessness. Homelessness is not the issue. It is the outcome of other systems failing all at once. And so when we look at things like child welfare, education, health care, criminal justice, These are all systems that directly have pipelines into homelessness. And until we address those, 
we are not going to be able to solve for homelessness. We actually do a pretty good job of rehousing people with the resources that we have. The problem is we can't shut off the inflow at a high enough rate. And many times that is coming from these other systems. So let's dive in. We know that in January 2023, 9,000 individuals were counted as unhoused in the point-in-time count for the metro area. And yet, as Dr. Reif mentioned in Episode 13, that's only a fraction of the actual number of unhoused individuals in our community. The real number is closer to 28,000. Why is that number so high? Part of the answer is economics. There is an increasing gap between wages and the cost of living in Denver. The Colorado Center for Law and Policy, or CCLP, put out the self-sufficiency standard in 2022, which defines the income necessary to meet basic needs differentiated by family type and county. Charlie Brennan from CCLP shared this. I think that there's a popular sort of assumption or narrative out there that folks who are unhoused or folks who are experiencing poverty are in that circumstance or situation because of, you know, their lack of effort, they're lazy, you know, they they don't work hard, et cetera. And when we look at the data in the self-sufficiency standard, we know that that's not the case. When we look at hours worked of households who are below the self-sufficiency standard, they are just barely below those of households that are above the self-sufficiency standard. Where we see the biggest difference is in the compensation that those households get for those hours of work. I think this data provides us with a lot of evidence that folks are in this situation because wages are just too low to realistically allow a household to support themselves without working 80 hours a week or working multiple jobs or putting themselves in situations that aren't conducive to a quality of life that I think we all we all hope for and want for every household in Colorado. Charlie goes on to talk about how these discrepancies impact a person's or household's ability to pay for housing. One thing that we haven't talked about that is part of the the overlooked and undercounted report is um, sort of the share of households below the self-sufficiency standard that are also severely housing cost burdened. It's about 46.6% of households who are paying 50% or more of their income on housing costs. And just 22.9% lived in housing that we would consider affordable based on their income. So spending 30% or less of their income on housing costs. So we see a tremendous correlation here between housing cost burden and people below their self-sufficiency standard. We can really take a 20-year, almost two-decade look at how costs have changed over time here in Colorado. When we look, and this is for you know an average four-person household, when we look at the average increase in costs across each of Colorado's 64 counties, For this four-person household, housing cost increased by 92% on average between 2001 and 2022. However, the average earnings for a worker over that same time period increased by just 64%. And so I think when we think about that and sort of the choices that households face when it comes to, you know, do I pay rent this month? Do I put food on the table for my kids? Do I pay my medical bill? Do I pay a mechanic bill for my car so I can drive to work? You know, it's it's not really surprising to me that so many households are in this situation where they're forced out of their homes because they just can't afford to keep up with the cost of rent on top of all the other costs that they're facing. When we interviewed a recipient of the Denver Basic Income Project, 
She had been using the monthly direct cash to supplement her rent, which she could not afford on just her paycheck. When we asked what'll happen when the program ends, she said this. To be quite honest, it leaves me in a state of worry and panic. I don't I don't know what's next. And it's kind of hard to start to wonder where to come because it's not like this money gets cut off and my my checks at work get any bigger. It's not like, you know, they're going to give me a raise because they know I'm about to lose income. So it's like, it really leaves me in this fearful position of like, how do I start to stipulate for the money that's about to be lost? So yeah, it's a very scary feeling. Christina, a recent homeowner through the Elevation Community Land Trust, also shared her financial situation with us and how, with rising taxes, her full-time salary is too low to cover all her housing and living expenses. You're in a really stable career now, and you've moved up and still not having the income that affords something in Denver without support. Yes, about $61,000 a year. One of my checks is probably 1700 and my mortgage is now 1700 So it, it does sound like a lot, but it's still, it's not enough for, for Denver. And now I don't qualify for food stamps. You know, now I don't qualify for any government assistance. So now I have to also try and fit that into my monthly budget. And when I first got my house, my mortgage wasn't that much. It was with this year's taxes that it went up to $1,700. i am grateful for my job and you know the amount I make. It's hard for Denver. Even on a good salary, one well above minimum wage, Christina is spending 50% of her income on housing, leaving her with very little to cover regular expenses, not to mention emergency expenses. Yet Christina doesn't qualify for food stamps or other public assistance, which could keep her stable. This is something called the cliff effect. When you crest a certain threshold in earnings that may have little impact on the amount you take home, but moves you out of eligibility for public assistance. Charlie Brennan from CCLP explains this concept further. We know that public benefit programs, things like SNAP, food stamps, Medicaid, can have a tremendous impact on the ability of a household to make ends meet. However, those programs aren't available to everyone. Not everyone is eligible. And so oftentimes households who could benefit from those supports aren't eligible for them because their incomes are just too high. It is about one in four households in Denver County struggling to make ends meet without any sort of public or private supports. It's important to also understand that many of the income eligibility requirements for these programs, they, they're not aligned with one another. And they're also based off of the federal poverty guidelines or the federal the official poverty measure. And so we're already underestimating through that measure the, the amount of folks that really could use or really benefit from the support that's provided through these programs. SNAP benefits, also known as food stamps, now require someone to have a job to receive them. And yet, people need to eat, even if they don't have a job. And for many with a job, they only receive enough benefits to afford food for half the month. This is a prime example of systems affecting each other and not coordinating. Here's another challenge. Christina is on a relatively fixed income 
with expenses that are not fixed. This dichotomy is something also greatly impacting our aging community members, as Dr. Jamie Reif talks about. One of the things that does keep me awake at night and many others in this industry is the sheer rise in the number of people that are experiencing homelessness from our aging population. And the reality is this is happening everywhere. Rents are increasing at rates where if you have a fixed income, you can't keep up. People don't necessarily have the networks to be able to, you know, be able to pay for rent or be able to keep their mortgage. Taxes are increasing, all of these things. And so we're seeing these really exponential worrying trends with the aging population experiencing homelessness. The other one, particularly during the pandemic, was the number of families that experienced homelessness for the first time who had two you know, adults in the household who may be working, both were in the service industry or some sort of job that was affected by COVID and just couldn't make ends meet. And I know I was getting emails daily, our agency on like, where do I go? What do I do? And these are people who've never had to navigate the system before. The challenge of stretching an insufficient amount of income to cover variable expenses and the cliff effect impact many in our community but some far more than others. According to a recent report from Supporting Partnerships for Anti-Racist Communities, there are deep racial disparities in homelessness and related systems, especially for Black and Indigenous residents. Dr. Reif talks about the impact of these disparities across systems. Those other systems disproportionately affect Black, Indigenous, and people of color, which is why we see them overrepresented three to five times in the number of people experiencing homelessness. And it's a direct result of failures of those systems. So how do we work to diminish these disparities and keep people in housing if they have it? We know that we could prevent a lot of homelessness if we could keep people in their living situations, especially during destabilizing events or life disruptions, like a loss of a job or a loved one. Back to Dr. Jamie Reif. I will say, during the pandemic, one of the few good things that came out of it was an increase in the amount of resources we had to prevent homelessness. And we prevented thousands of people from experiencing homelessness. And it's so much better to do that than it is to try to rehouse people after they've already been through the trauma and the economic hardship of falling into homelessness. So that's You know, something I think that's really important that we need to be looking at, like from our data, it costs about $1,400 to keep someone housed. To rehouse them, you're talking $8,500 to $12,000. And so let's just keep people in housing when they're at risk versus only being able to help them once they've actually experienced literal homelessness. Juan Escubedo, an expert on trauma whom we heard from earlier in the season, talks about prevention and what he sees in terms of what prompts homelessness. There's a couple of pieces in there, too, in terms of how do we even keep individuals housed. There's a whole spectrum of the unhoused, and we tend to just see and pay attention to the individuals that are on the streets. There's not enough conversation about, you know, prevention. You know, there's a lot of individuals at the borderline of being one paycheck away from being in the street, essentially. So there's the whole spectrum that I think we really need to start looking more into. And if we want to put solutions or monies, it will be that comprehensive spectrum to make sure that no matter what point of homelessness this individual is touching, 
that we're able to respond appropriately with a cultural trauma lens and linguistically in a way that makes sense with individuals and staff that can deeply understand the experience. Michaela, a former case manager at Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, talks about her experience after working with hundreds of clients. I think some of the common things for a lot of people, it had to do with some sort of mental illness episode or flare-up, and everything about their life was pretty stable before that. For some people, it was a physical disability that prevented them from working, and for whatever reason, they didn't necessarily have the support system or the financial support needed to be able to stay on their feet and maintain whatever kind of housing situation they had. Getting out of prison or jail, that was a really common one. Also very common was a domestic violence situation. And really you also have to think about like there's maybe an event that happens which snowballs into a person not having a place to live anymore. And a lot of times In order to cope with all of that stress, sometimes substance use or alcohol misuse was involved. A lot of people didn't necessarily have family to fall back and rely on or not good and supportive family. Putting more resources into supporting folks as they leave situations like domestic violence or jail that we know cause people to become unhoused is clearly one key. Another is focusing on how to rebuild the social and familial networks around those experiencing homelessness. What we do know is that once you've experienced homelessness, you're likely to again. Dr. Reif talks more about this. Time and time again, what we see is the largest and most reliable predictor of homelessness is if you've experienced homelessness before. So if you have young children in your house, they're going to be much more likely to experience homelessness as adults. And you will be exponentially more prone to experiencing homelessness if you have before. And so if we stop it before it starts, we stop that cycle before it starts. So what about solutions? Some of what we're doing is working. And some of the emergency supports that were available during COVID also worked. How do we leverage these and build more so that we can have a comprehensive cadre of efforts that prevent homelessness or ensure it is a rare and brief event. This is Jonna from Elevated Denver. We're close to wrapping up season two. If you've found this podcast enlightening or educational, think about donating. There's a link right on our webpage, and your donation is tax-deductible. We're not just working on the podcast. We're working to create innovative solutions to this complex issue that are rooted in the stories and expertise of those who've experienced homelessness. Come to our website to find out more about the model we are building and how you can get involved. Here's Britta Fisher. Hi, I'm Britta Fisher, and I am the president and CEO of the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. Previously, I was employed by Mayor Michael B. Hancock to be his chief housing officer and the first executive director of the Department of Housing Stability, or HOST. I think a budget is 
an expression of values. And I am very proud of the growth of resources that have gone towards homelessness. And to have seen that growth, to have seen the Denver voters overwhelmingly pass three measures in a row that allowed us to create new investment in homelessness and to keep those revenues, that, that was so heartening at every level. Denver's voters have been receptive to requests for more resources, which is important. But as Britta acknowledged, we're still well behind where we need to be. Homelessness has grown exponentially, and so must the resources to address it. And, we would argue, the investment in innovative approaches. But there are things that are working well in our system. And like the policies that have been approved, we want to acknowledge those positive elements. Michaela, the former case manager, reflects on what is working. I think a lot of it has to do with having a good support system. So people who still had family that they talked to and that family was supportive and, you know, forgiving, if that applies. Some people have really not great relationships with their family, and some of that is for great reason. But I think that having support and having a support system is really really necessary for people who are able to gain self-sufficiency. It's kind of a lot of baby steps over a longer time. And those baby steps that people are taking eventually give them the confidence in themselves too to know, I can do this and I can keep doing it. And I've also maybe built enough of a support system by now that once I move out, And if something happens, I have some support to lean back on, whereas before I didn't. Self-sufficiency is an interesting term. If you think about it, none of us are truly self-sufficient. We all have friends, family, and community we rely on to help pick up our kids after school if we're running late, to talk to when we're worried about something, or to encourage us when we've hit a rough patch. Maybe figuring out how to provide or strengthen one's network to build a broader base of support is key to regaining stability. Another aspect that has risen with nearly everyone we've talked to who works in this field is that we must acknowledge the unique needs of individuals and better match services to those needs. Juan elaborates on this. There are lack of access and right fit of services in places and with people that are trusted. And when we talk about outcomes, we're talking about individual receiving the same services that everybody gets have different effects uh, of those services. So when we look at disparities, you know, two people's experience receiving the same services can lead to very different results. And that's what we're seeing in general, that there's no general way of implementing these services because not one size fits all. Everybody's trauma history manifests differently and everybody's recovery journey is very different as well. And part of the disparities is that put, you know, all those challenges and barriers in play and compound that with the trauma, right? Compound that with the intergenerational trauma and then compound that with 
the trauma from being unhoused. And so that starts painting a picture of the barriers and starts painting a picture of, you know, that there's no way to generalize services because everybody's story and picture is very different. We asked Britta Fisher what she thinks comes next. What will solve homelessness? Yes, we need services. Yes, we need to address substance misuse and health issues and all of that. But you can't do it without the foundation of affordable home. If you get sober or well and then you are discharged back to the street or a shelter, it is not going to stick. It just isn't a place conducive to healing, sobriety, or other elements of stability. And so we have to be housing stable. And the cure is housing wrapped with all of those support services. I think we can all advocate for, federally and at every level of government, are one, an investment in what are called housing vouchers. So housing vouchers are the operating dollars that pay that delta between what a person can afford and what it takes to operate housing, that rest of that rent. Housing vouchers are one of the biggest limiting factors to housing stability. We have a housing choice voucher program here in our country that only actually has game show odds of a person who's eligible receiving it. So about one in every five households receives a housing choice voucher. So one, I would ask all of us to federally advocate for fully funding housing vouchers at the level of need that we have in this country. That would stabilize so many people and allow our systems to work. Get rid of the caps. You can still limit the amount of subsidy, but allow a person to use it wherever they can get it used. We have an unconscionable amount of vouchers going unutilized by folks because they can't thread the needle between finding a landlord who's willing to take their protected source of income and the supply that exists and then the rent that the federal government caps. Next part is something that is called the low-income housing tax credit. So tax credits have funded most of the affordable housing in this country. It is a bipartisan-supported tool. We need more of it. There is not enough tax credit for all the projects that could be funded. In Colorado, it's been like one tax credit dollar available for every 18 applied for. Like, it, it's a big delta depending on the year and the cycle. And people kind of give up at some point that they can't get that tax credit. But if we had more of it, we could absolutely deliver more quality, affordable housing in communities. The third part is services. So we've got the low-income housing tax credit, we've got the housing choice vouchers, or all sorts of vouchers for housing, and then the services. We have not figured out how to fund services. It is the secret sauce that helps people stay in housing, and it is not that secret. There's nothing like money to bring people to the table and say, okay, we have our one-time dollars, we have our ongoing dollars, Let's do this together. So I think a funding source, again, is something that I would look for the mayor of Denver to be a leader on. And then for the services, I think that we have a lot of opportunity at both the state and local level, as well as the federal level, to utilize Medicaid waivers, utilize other tools of bureaucracy to change it so that it is less mean, 
more empowering environments with more flexibility for our community partners to serve people in the community. Ron Zielinski, an outreach worker who was formerly unhoused, and Dr. Jamie Reif also reflect on how we move out of the current homelessness crisis. Well, I can say that the whole issue of homelessness is complicated. There's no easy solution. And I'm just one person that has just one particular story. Everybody's story is different. Stay positive. Take advantage of the services that are available to you out there. That's why they're there. And sooner or later, before you know it, you can climb out of where you are. And a lot of times I tell people that at a camp. I used to be you. Now look at me. I show my badge proudly. And now here, here I am on the other side. So it can be done. You know, I'm hopeful in a lot of ways. Prior to COVID, there were a lot of silos that existed. And because of COVID, the one few silver linings is that it forced a lot of different people to come to the table and work collectively to keep people safe. And that is a legacy that is living on right now. We're seeing a lot of cross-systems collaboration. We're understanding how healthcare, criminal justice, all of those systems that I mentioned are all contributing directly to this and that we all have to be at the table working together to solve it or else we're not going to actually be able to solve for homelessness. So I'm very hopeful that this renewed and expanded collaboration will be kind of the next generation of how we approach homelessness. Every one person that you see that are visible, there are probably three people that you don't see. And while the visible population tends to be those, as you said, that have more higher barriers, more they tend to be more chronically homeless, things like that, the three out of four people that you don't see are people that, you know, have different barriers. They might be more newly homeless. They might be staying in their car, their families, they're the aging population, oftentimes are employed. And they're just, they're just not able to make ends meet. And so they've fallen into homelessness, but they may not have the same barriers as those that you see on a day-to-day basis, like as you drive through Denver or go to work or on the bus. And when we talk about homelessness, we have to make sure that we're talking about this very, very wide spectrum of people that are experiencing homelessness. And I want to just really, really reinforce that because... I think in this country, we tend to think about this as a single issue or like there's one population or there's one magic, one magic intervention that if we just did this, we'd solve for homelessness. (laughs) And the reality is, is there are some people that just need a couple of months of a rent subsidy or a little bit of help. There are other people that are going to need housing and ongoing supports for the rest of their lives. And we have to build a system that accommodates all of these needs. This is where Elevated Denver fits in. We're helping to make visible those who you don't see or think of when you hear the term homelessness. We're illustrating their journeys so policymakers and funders can better understand the experiences of those using the housing and homelessness supports and tangential systems. Denver Mayor Mike Johnston said this when we asked about the path to solving homelessness. It starts with just being in conversation with people as regularly as possible. And that is talking to someone you see on the street. It's stopping by shelters. It's getting to people when they're at meals and being able to ask them some questions. What's working for you? What's not? What would you like to see us do better? What are you missing? How are the services we're providing not helping? How would they be more helpful? Then I think 
also partnering with the providers who are providing the direct services to listen to them, to say what's working for you, what are the ways that the city's making it difficult to get resources or deliver services or provide what you know people need. I think a big part of this is communication and partnership and coalition. I think what I've heard from a lot of the providers and from the people currently experiencing homelessness is there does not feel like a unified, organized effort that is combining all the services into one kind of ladder of intervention and support. And I think that's the city's obligation to be that convener because we have the most resources and the most people and the most branches of city government that might touch all these individuals. And we've got to make sure those are all aligned. I think our opportunity is really housing community, and dignity. Treat one another well. Be a good human. Connect with one another. Do things that are in the best interest of our common purpose, our common unity, our community. And have homes that are affordable and accessible for everyone. So where does that leave us? We all want solutions to homelessness. Throughout this season, we've talked to people driving new solutions, the Denver Basic Income Project, landlords trying to be the center point between stable housing and tenants' basic needs, and lawyers working to prevent evictions. How do we continue to elevate these things and tie them together? This is part of where we at Elevated Denver fit in. We'll continue to highlight and focus on those who've experienced homelessness because they're the true experts. And aren't we all experts in our own life? As Dr. Jamie Rife says, There is no one-size-fits-all magic bullet approach to homelessness. It is a wide spectrum of experiences and needs and solutions. And what we have to be willing to do in this country is look at what the actual needs are and what people experiencing homelessness are telling us their needs are. Invite them in to co-design the system with us so that we're designing something that is meaningful and based in data and accuracy instead of constantly continuing to guess what people need or project what people need. We hope this episode and the whole season of the podcast leaves you feeling more informed about homelessness in our community and hopeful that there's a path forward. There are many prongs to the solution, but as Britta Fisher said, it begins with compassion and a sense that as residents in this city, we're responsible for each other. We need to listen to one another, vote for policies that support more affordable, attainable housing, and collaborate effectively to bring the most responsive services to neighbors in need. While we're wrapping up this podcast season, Elevated Denver's work is just beginning. Stay tuned at elevateddenver.co. Sign up for our newsletters and reach out if you're interested in being part of the change. And consider donating to help move this work forward at coloradogives.org slash story slash Elevate Denver. And one last thank you to our episode sponsor, Be Connected. You can learn more about their work to revolutionize housing support and retention through data at beconnected.org. That's connected with a K. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you found this episode interesting and informative. This will be the last episode of Season 2. 
You can look for season three to start early in 2024. In the meantime, we at Elevated Denver are continuing to build a community landscape illustrating journeys through Denver's housing and homelessness system. This set of qualitative data will be merged with other robust data and used to inform funding and policy around homelessness in Denver. If you'd like to learn more about the landscape and the rest of our work, please visit us at elevateddenver.co. And don't forget to let others in the community know about this podcast. The Elevated Denver Podcast is produced by Leanne Morrison, Myra Nagy, and Jonna Flood. Narration brought to you by me, Nathan Havey. Editing, sound design, and music are composed and provided by Jesse Boynton. Recording and production provided by the Olympic Recording Studio. Episodes this season were brought to you by Rose Community Foundation, Warren Village, Elevation Community Land Trust, Peak Resources, Mead and Hunt, and Don and Linda Burns of the Burns Institute for Poverty Research. Thank you for your support and for believing in this work. Thank you also to our guests this season. We are grateful that you shared your stories and expertise with us. To go deeper on all of the topics we raised or get involved with the work, visit us at elevateddenver.co and be sure to look for season three after the new year. Be great to each other out there. It will take all of us to build an elevated Denver. Denver.